Welcome to the Legacy Makers at Work podcast. I am Liz Stern, and this podcast is especially for Gen Xers and aspiring leaders in mid-career seeking to create an intentional work legacy aligned with your personal purpose and vision while in the midst of a busy, complex life. I am here with my co-host, Phyllis Weiss-Hazaro, and our guest, Alex Wolf. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to have Alex as our guest today. Alex is a wonderful example of someone who has forged an unusual and multifaceted path in her work-life journey. Alex is a Rhode Island School of Design artist, designer, and inventor who invented the pattern ABC along with other visual systems for understanding spatial relations and how nature grows, which are used in preschools to PhD programs and with AI specialists. She is the co-founder of nature.org, which is N-A-2-U-R-E.org, which was founded to explore the intersection of good design and emotional well-being, and to research how best to achieve that goal at the intersection of nature's expertise, which is visual and spatial learning, and mental health. Alex and I have known each other for about 10 years and share a desire to create a more inclusive and humane society within our respective strengths. Welcome, Alex. Alex starts with the premise that traditional education is underserving talented kids, resulting in disengagement and poor self-esteem among learners. With a robust research team, a clear set of sequenced research questions, and design systems for patterns and spatial skills, Alex and the team at Nature believe it is possible to impact learning and its emotional component to align talents and motivation by valuing and scaffolding the spatial component of learning and its role in the whole child. Way to go, Alex. By developing and testing spatial and design thinking powered tools for learning, Nature hopes to integrate those tools into existing curricula, resulting in workforce and school systems that value the uniqueness of every learner and future member of the workforce. Alex and Nature have developed a new path to spatial learning, introducing the pattern alphabet, and also partner with UNICEF, NASA, and INCOSE, which is the International Council on Systems Engineering, and other institutions. She co-chairs the Natural Systems Working Group at INCOSE and is an external collaborator at NASA, and wrote a chapter in the first textbook on biomimicry to be published by Elsevier in 2022. Simply put, Alex and her team have developed design tools to empower all of us to explore patterns in nature and find intersections within our lives that create vision, imagination, and opportunity. I have been so impressed with her purposeful intention in creating nature and think you will learn a lot about pursuing an impactful work legacy from her perspective. We are delighted to have Alex as our guest. Alex, it's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to get your perspective on developing a work legacy and your journey thus far. My first question for you is how you would define work legacy and would that definition be evident in your journey? You know, that's a really interesting question because it was super early on. I was about 14 years old and I had these two big questions for my father who was really bright and he went to Harvard at 16. And, you know, I I guess I was a little bit bored at the girls' school I was at in, in New York. I, I was restless. And so I said, well, what's the best school in the country? And he didn't even look up from over the newspaper. He said, Exeter. And then I said, well, okay. So I came back a little later. How do you know you've succeeded in your field? And he said, when people can't discuss your field without discussing you and your contribution to it. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Exeter and I'm still working on the second thing. His big insight that was... Uh, very valuable was 
original thought. He felt that knowable things meant that you were knowledgeable, but really a lot more was needed than that. And so the idea of trying to fulfill what I would consider to be an original vision and make a big contribution with seeing the intersection of uh, some things from my perspective is, uh, I guess, what's defining the work that I'm doing right now and how that might consist of my legacy. I love what your father said. I wrote that down. Me too. So, Alex, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to have you here. I am so happy to have the opportunity to hear about this very interesting work. So tell me, how did your career evolve? Did you, for instance, experience an epiphany or some challenge that impacted how you think about legacy? And importantly, what do you consider your core values and how they might have influenced your career and intended legacy? And I know I just threw out a a lot at you. Uh, Start wherever you you want in attacking that. Okay, so I'll start with how did my career evolve? And as I mentioned, I had gone to Exeter and I got to art school by luck. When I was a junior, uh, late in the year, I was offered a scholarship to go to Barcelona for senior year of high school. And I wasn't planning on this. And so this forced early college visits and I was really uh, not prepared and scrambling around. But when the process started, my art teacher, uh, strong Mr. Wharton, strongly advised me to go to art school. And I had never thought of this. I'd been sort of designing and artistic. I loved art at Exeter. My mother was sort of unprepared for this, too, because not only had she gone to work at 16 after the war in London, but my father had just died the summer before. So we followed Mr. Wharton's suggestion. And I went to visit colleges early, which in those days you never did. And I walked into RISD in the building where the nature lab is, as well as the drawing and the 2D studios. And it was messy and there was charcoal dust everywhere and cigarette butts. And it just felt so alive. There was so much doing and making and messiness and thinking. It was just really exciting. I felt once I arrived at RISD, that I was almost walking through the wardrobe into Narnia because I had come out of this very academic schooling and I didn't really know where it was going to lead. And so I really tried a lot of things. I trusted my own curiosity. And uh, in hindsight, it's easy to connect the dots that of why I did one thing and then the next and then the next. But traveling forward, each dot wasn't really that obvious. It was a question that I was sort of trying to answer. Well, I want to know more about this. And so I would pursue it, but because I trusted it, this curiosity to have an, you know, the, as Rilke would say, live the questions until you live your way into the answer. I guess I had this faith that it would lead me to where I needed to go. And so I'm a little bit confused when people today are sort of trying to plan out this very scripted path for themselves. Mm -hmm. I find it sort of dull and I'm I'm really not surprised when people end up being sort of bored or frustrated because they're they're trying to know the the end before living the middle. And the you know when you talk about what the career is now, I can tell you that the, the hindsight is that I'm trying to help more people who are, you know, highly spatial to find their their place in doing what it is that they're good at, because we really focus on verbal and math skills in school. And yet testing and research shows that it's not, our cognitive abilities aren't one half verbal and one half math. 
They're one third each mm-hmm. of verbal math and spatial. And so we're losing these highly talented students every year who aren't verbal or math proficient. They're the people who are going to be engineers and plumbers and farmers and botanists. And we're, we're really, um, we're not servicing them well. So the fast forward into what was the epiphany or the challenge was that I started doing the work of uh, trying to design nature learning when I became a mother. And uh, I really was looking forward to sitting on the floor and just enjoying time with my child, watching her learn. I felt that this was going to be really a fascinating thing. And I didn't realize it would change my entire direction. But one of the things that was, I guess, an epiphany was that we were giving children that the process of having a family was the actual sort of multi-level unsustainability of raising children in the U.S. And this was, she was born in 2001. First of all, you have a lack of time from parents working. And then you have the lack of quality care that parents are trusting when they're at work. Then you have on top of that, the rubbish toys and books and media, which are produced for children in the name of fun, but are really just some sort of, there's a lot of corporate profit machine about plastic made in Asia. Then When you have your child and they're getting to school, you really become disappointed in the boringness of school. And the additionally, the the nightmare of the inequitability of our U.S. school system. But the sort of the overarching thing is the joys that we take as humans in nature and the arts have been sort of sucked out of this whole process. And I really felt that that was the place where I didn't understand why I couldn't find nature learning for my daughter. And I looked all over the place and, you know, I really loved playing with puzzles and games and I had my favorites as a child. So when I came to be a parent, I was looking around for this stuff. I didn't find it. And I got really annoyed. And then later I said, okay, fine, roll up the sleeves, get out the RISD grit, start duct taping something together, start defining the problem. And then you'll be able to work your way into the answer. And so the core value was the the end of your question. How did this, this really work its way into my work was how did I feel that the my child should be felt or even how I should feel as a child? How did I feel about doing like certain programs or a school or whatever else? And I really wanted to, to work to a gold standard. I did not want to find that somehow we were talking down to children when considering, like, especially during zero to five, you know, they have more neuronal development than people have in the rest of their lives. And so it's really depressing to think of how, I mean, it sounds sort of oxymoronic in a way, how we infantilize children, but we really are not respecting their individual minds and their intelligence the market is not providing us with really intelligent things to do with our children or just the ability to leave them alone. It's sort of telling you you should be running around all the time. What teachers have to engage children with is also going to sort of the lowest level. And so, you know, there's this entire lack of trust and it goes against somebody like Sugata Mitra's work on the self-organized learning system, which says that children can really learn from each other. And they have this intense curiosity that will lead them into learning and that we should trust that. So I think one of the things that the sort of the standards that I wanted was I wanted somebody to give me, I wanted to be able to find in the store to order or to, you know, to make with instructions 
something that would be really fun for my daughter and me to do. And that's what I felt I should be giving back to these parents. These, I knew that they were tired. Um, I knew that, you know, that there were, they were given lots of different things that they didn't really know what the value of was and that they were worried that they weren't educating their child properly or that they weren't playing with the right things. I, I wanted to give them confidence. I wanted to give them joy. I wanted to make the time that they spent with their child special. And so I wanted to make games and toys and puzzles and books that that you would keep reaching for. They would be the ones that you would leave out on the coffee table. Having your child as an inspiration is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. And I think adults shut themselves off from learning more and following their own curiosity very often. I totally agree. And I also, Alex, I love the notation to Narnia at the very beginning of your answering this question, because I think that's a perfect metaphor for how you move from one space to another. And then your your other statement of living the questions until you know the answers is also a great concept. And all that you have that you sought to create was really powerful. And essentially you answered my next question because I was going to ask you what compelled you to move in the direction of pattern ABC, but in a way you can still answer that question because that was a very, that's a very specific patterning system. And what drove you to found nature? Like, because you could have found, I guess, other venues or, or avenues to, Maybe it was maybe they would have been too traditional of a pipeline. But, you know, what were the challenge? What would have been the challenges in this process? And were there any times when you had to pivot or change course? Well, I think that you're touching on the fact that there are these things that we hold sacred almost. And then there are these things that we find very pedestrian and boring and trying to find magic in the moment really is part of your point of view. But it really starts by having this question of joyousness. And I suppose one of the things that that I had really thought, and I'll, I'll tie it up to the, you know, why the pattern alphabet and why nature, is how, how is it that I had a really bang up education at like, you know, top notch schools and everything. And there was all this stuff that I left school not knowing. So if you leave school and you still have questions and you're still reading and you're still wondering about of stuff, you're starting your own self-education. I guess by the time I left school at 21, my daughter was born when I was 35, I started seeing that there was a way for me to design the education I wished I had for her. And I only ended up having one child and I would have happily had more, but in the end, I felt that designing for children was my way to have more children, to engage with them more, to really process this incredible amount of fun that happens that we somehow just squelch. We basically use school as, you know, sit down and be quiet and don't play with your pencil. Like we've really taken learning out of learning. We've made it into an exercise in behavior. You know, it's a, the factory system is that was built for the, the older eras is no longer relevant. And so the idea of taking this joy and trying to create these opportunities for kids to, to really wonder in their own brain and how they can see something or how they can do something and they can draw something, they can see it and then they can make it with their hand. Like that's really 
that's not something to overlook as sort of basic. And that whole process to me was when I started nature was the idea that I really felt that we owed children a way to learn their way into how nature builds everything. I mean, Linnaeus is the most Googled topic. It's not Jesus and it's not Mao Zedong. Um, it's, it's Linnaeus and it's because humans want order in their world. And one of the things that's the biggest ordered but yet unordered system is nature. And so the idea of giving people back something that is our earthright, sort of, you know, our birthright, but our earthright is that we live on this planet, you know, we should be more connected to it. And what if this learning from nature was, was how we were wired? What if this was something where you could give somebody back their own qualities of intelligence, of animal evolution? And so Nature was formed to do learning about nature in a visual mode that was an all-age thing, universal. The pattern alphabet is the place where I really got down to where it was. It's the most universal in terms of it's not just plants and animals, it's natural systems. It's the universe. So it's sort of beyond just our planet. Um, And it encompasses things like weather. I mean, you can see a spiral in, you know, a fern uh, like a fiddlehead fern that's curled over as well as a seashell, as well as a hurricane and a galaxy, or even just flushing water down a toilet. I mean, to, to start priming your eyes to see these things, to give kids back this, you know, the wonder where you could um, look at spirals and then start learning other subjects and say, for example, science or something. You know, I really want kids to look at a, a Twizzler of these sort of the stripes that go around a twisted licorice and be able to think of DNA. Wow, that's great. Yes, it sounds like the universe. One more follow-on question. Did your, did your daughter get to revel in the patterns of nature that you shared with her? Or did she, did she connect with it quickly and early? So the pattern ABC came when she was 14. What has happened is that she's lived in the lab where all of this has been made. And I haven't overly tested stuff on her because then she doesn't become a good test subject. All right. She goes along with me looking at art because we go to the museum a lot uh, or at nature. And so she's been able to be part of the back end thinking of this. You know, she, she did tell me once, you know, the reason why I'm not good at science is because you didn't make your work fast enough. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, duly noted, I, I understand. I tried to work faster, but this is the place where she's informed a lot of my thinking and I use her eyes as a test on things. She's actually absorbed. She's sort of metabolized a lot of this stuff without being specifically good at particular parts of it. Lucky girl. So Alex, I think most people don't have straight line careers anymore, even if they start out thinking they will, or that they have to know what their passion is early on, which is really too much pressure for a lot of people. And you keep mentioning joy. I think joy is often connected with surprises. So what has surprised you about your career so far? You know, that's a, an interesting question. I guess the, the biggest surprise I have now is that I spent a lot of time with being the only person without a PhD in the room. And 
in the beginning, I felt sort of, oh, well, you know, I'm not as fancy as they are. You know, maybe I should go back and study something else. Until I realized that actually the reason I was there was because of the diversity of how I thought. That it was interesting to be a RISD-trained sculptor at NASA talking about their AI that is looking to see, you know, natural forms and how do we teach it? Because they use the pattern alphabet in their AI. That's how they've coded the lens for it. So how do you teach a computer how to see a spiral? You know, that's that question is very close to how do you teach a three-year-old to see a spiral or to get them to recognize that it's a spiral and then something else is a spiral? How do you sort of engage in that process? And so to a certain extent, what happened was I began to really appreciate the diversity of team. And Liz mentioned the INCOSI, the International Council of Systems Engineers, where I'm working with the Natural Systems Working Group. I'm coming out of being a sculptor, you know, and a, and a designer who's making learning stuff. But the, the spatial learning has a lot to do with how do we keep the engineering profession filled and systems engineers. And so what I found is from the engineering side, for example, the more diverse a team is, the more successful it is. And the mm -hmm. diversity of a human society's needs being addressed physically, culturally, geographically in these many different ways, that that is what the better thing is. So I was surprised to find that my, my outsider was exactly the success that needed it because of how I was arriving in all these different questions actually had a similarity to what some of these people have been working on for a while. Right. That's awesome. Yes. Especially to come to the realization of appreciating that being a, an outsider is part of your success or maybe even the greater part. Yeah. You know, Alex, I think that in when we think about boards and companies now and just the world in general, I think it really does help to have a wide variety of people with different experiences because education is kind of stifling these days. And even if you don't have a graduate degree or a PhD or whatever kind of degree, that doesn't mean your brain doesn't work. It just means you don't have that degree and you still have tremendous opportunity to contribute, which I think is really important and needs to be recognized some way, somehow a lot more. Well, this is the thing that becomes interesting about the skills-based assessment that I think some people are sort of trying to move towards is that I rewatched Sugata Mitra's talk from 2013 at TED, which was talking about how would you rule the world if you were the British Empire, you would create schools. And if you created lots of little pieces that all thought the same and taught them to do the same thing, then they would be like one big human computer with pencil and paper, you know, and a, and a postal system and ships that cross the ocean. We don't have that anymore. And the idea of creating standard is so out of whack with what we need. It's so out of whack with people telling you that you need design thinking and creativity. Well, how is that going to happen if you strip the entire arts program out of a school? Why is it that like we really can't turn this boat around? And I think that the concept of what the pandemic has shown us about work as adults or school as children or parents um, or even teachers and people who administer schools is that what we have doesn't work. It's not that you're not going to learn French or whatever or biology. It's that we set up a system that serves the convenience of the adults and not the student. And we're not prioritizing 
this sort of individual learning, we're penalizing kids for not being good at, you know, a certain level of stuff. And it's, they don't necessarily need everything. The fact is that if it turns out that you're not good at music, then, then maybe you won't be a musician. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, what if you are good at music and, you know, you, you're also good at math, you should be able to continue with your music because it relates to math. And so this idea that we have this sense of, wanting things to come out like little perfect factory models is so the antithesis of how we're going to solve these really huge burning questions about how humanity lives on this earth and whether we'll be able to do so in a similar fashion going forward is the revolution needs to start going on as quickly as possible. And truthfully, it can't come fast enough. I think people are ready for something new. So I hope the machinery that works around this uh, responds quickly and that parents and students require it to, that they really fight for that. Right. And that there is a choice of what you pursue to get to the answers and the solutions you're looking for. You know, not a particular degree or type of school or type of training necessarily. Exactly. I mean, I think the thing is that people will find what they're good at and what it is that that gives them pleasure will will bring them to a place where they they learn more, they pursue it on their own. And we have a, a maybe about one in five kids have a learning disability, most most of them around reading. You have children with dyslexia and they can take it apart a radio and put it back together in an hour. And we're penalizing them for not being able to read. We really need to get into this important part of spatial learning and how it's it's a soul-sucking thing to have to do something you're not good at and to not be able to do something you are good at. Yeah, I hear you, a soul-sucking thing. So I, I, do, I have another question about whether or not there's been a story or experience that clarifies the importance of legacy for you and how you've created a well-lived life. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because they, the person who I really love how he frames it is Richard Worman, who has been great to uh, connect with on some of the work that I've been doing. He's such a big thinker. And he basically says, design a life that you want to live. That's, that's, that's your job, is to create your own livable life. And it's interesting when I think about the the concept of the legacy that I didn't really think about legacy until I met you, Liz, because it connected me in an active way to words of my father's that I had metabolized and realized that I wasn't just sort of swimming along, that I could actually choose a direction. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> you've been part of, you've been part of the journey. <laughs> Absolutely. So we encourage people not to wait until they're headed toward the latter end of careers to think about work legacy. You know, we're not going to be going back to the zero to five-year-old age to be thinking about work legacy. But do you think it's more important than ever to think in terms of this work legacy, how you want to be remembered, your impact, your influence on others by mid-career? And if so, why? Or is there a time when it's too early or too late? You know, I don't think I can answer that for other people, except to say that the moment something starts catching your attention, listen to it. I basically worked as a polymath is a strong word, but I I worked along in different fields of design and art 
and different things of making. And um, I acquired all these different skills through my own self-education. Like I became sort of an expert in color and stuff. It wasn't until I, I knew that I had this desire to stay on the floor with my child and I didn't know what it was going to teach me, but it was this thing that I, that I followed. And so I only worked for myself going forward because I said, I never want to fight with a job and sitting on the floor with my child. So it was basically when I was 35 that all of these nickels started to drop together. I mean, I had uh, done some children's books, illustrations and stuff, and that did point me in the direction of wanting to work for children. But I think that people feel like they have to know what their calling is when they're 25. And that's just just go do interesting things and become an interesting person. Go do things that are worth doing. Work for people for money, for not for money, like, you know, volunteer or something listen to where your heart is taking you and your curiosity. So I guess I don't think that there's a place in your career that you find that necessarily. Some people find it earlier or later. That's a great answer, really. So Alex, where do you think you are now in your journey with your work legacy? And what do you see as your next steps? Uh, Okay, so this is, I would say, like a three-part answer. First is about raising awareness of spatial intelligence. Second is making the content to raise the spatial awareness. And the third is forming the delivery system for that. So first is that spatial skills are so ubiquitous and yet they're so poorly understood. And this is the cause of so many interrelated problems in education, in uh, gender inequity, in STEM, in socioeconomic issues with schooling and achievement. So how many people do you know that that understand that 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 spatial is such an important part of our thing? You know, you, you definitely know somebody who can load a dishwasher or the trunk of a car much better than others. But what does that mean? And I really feel that da Vinci was an inventor because he was an artist and a scientist, meaning that it was both of those things, the form and the function. And so letting people know that this is a, a really important part of their day-to-day lives, you know, how they even fold their laundry is, is a spatial task, can help this bring the awareness that it has a real value and that value sits as along with literacy, but it also sits importantly in terms of creativity. And so that being able to give kids like a da Vinci vision by using their pattern recognition is a pretty strong thing. You're being able to plug into a part of your brain that is evolved for survival. So then the next part of that is on the journey is, okay, so then I am a maker. And so making books and puzzles and cards and apps and online activities. This is the next piece of the equation is to be able to create all of these different things. We're in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign on some clear cards on the pattern alphabet right now. And so that's the first published pattern alphabet that's come out. But we're doing some work around cognitive testing and how kids are processing these different patterns and stuff. And that will inform the design. So we consider ourselves somewhere between a a think tank of research and design in this nonprofit world. And I really hope to be able to spend more time doing physical prototypes because that's my particular strength. That's the oxygen of a, a, a studio practice of an artist or a designer. And that really fuels things like the collaboration with NASA or the systems engineer And in making those items, you say like, okay, well, how is that all going to get out? And the nonprofit got started this year, which is 10 years after the dot-com got started. So the dot-com 
we were publishing some games and stuff. And then we switched over to being a think tank. And then we decided we, we definitely needed a nonprofit arm. And so we're discussing right now the idea of becoming like a Khan Academy style model of free content and being able to do this by the possibility of big donors. And this really speaks to the fact that um, the work that we did with UNICEF testing the pattern alphabet delivery in Tanzania, it really became clear that schools needed better basics and they need the awareness that I spoke about, and then they need the manipulatives that I spoke about. But then this sort of the free activities and stuff that will scaffold some of this, like just giving the knowledge away, teaching somebody how to draw like four different kinds of spirals and why do they work that way and where did they found in nature and what do they do in engineering? That is the place where we would like to get to is to be able to give this content away in activities that could be used all over the world because a lot of this pattern stuff, we're moving towards a society in a way where you learn how to put together a bookcase from Ikea. There's no words in there. That's the place that we would like to be is to really create some global universal education around nature's patterns and have kids be able to follow this arts-based curriculum of activities. Maybe you don't even call it a curriculum. It's just doing activities, doing fun stuff. That's that's hopefully the place that we're going to get to, I hope, pretty soon. Your work has had a big impact and it sounds fascinating. So looking forward, is there an important problem for now and post pandemic you would like to have a significant part in solving, you know, something specific that you haven't mentioned. I guess the important problem is to really shake things up. It's time to be brave, not kick the can down the road and really get kids to change how we're delivering a lot of learning. It needs to be more fun. They need to make more things. They need to spend more time drawing and they need to move physically and explore nature. And the reason why I think that this is really crucial is because a lot of this nature-based learning that we set up, I had hoped when I began doing it was going to be part of helping grow the next generation to help solve for climate crisis. I mean, bio-inspired design the pattern alphabet is sort of the language of that. It's the alphabet of these, these forms that we'll need to use in design. And so the radical shift in action to learn more about nature so that we don't destroy her and we can live with her. And the more we learn about her and we love her more and we stop destroying habitats and species and ecosystems, I really feel like this spatial education is an, a deeply important urgency right now to get into programs. And so we've been working very hard to have things available by September for training in late August for preschools and elementary. We really want to see that difference made. We feel that we're responding not just to the Zoom pandemic school disaster, but to the larger humanity living safely on earth and stopping a lot of really destructive things. We need to embrace that biophilia and change a lot of these habits. That's something that we're really committed to doing. You know, again, you mentioned fun and joy. And if there ever was a time where we needed more fun and joy, this is it. This is it. Yeah, we're right behind you cheering you on. I can guarantee that. So Alex, lastly, what tip or takeaway do you want to leave the audience and your followers with today? What call to action? How can we 
get behind you? How, how can they take away from what you told us some good next steps for them? I think we need to really start respecting the individual, the individual's mm -hmm. skills. That's in terms of what they want to do when they're learning, what they're drawn to. And that in terms of from cradle to career, I really feel like we are hierarchizing jobs and employment. We value the work of a doctor over the work of an essential employee when we know that we need both of their work every day. We in this country have experienced a terrible amount of displacement and unhappiness from our manufacturing moving out of the U.S. And I really feel that the idea of people having manual skills and being able to make things and there are builders and our artists and our plumbers and electricians, our plumbers and electricians are just as important as our engineers. And so I really would fight strongly for kids to be able to follow this idea that there is dignified work and that we should respect a lot of these professions that have basically fallen into a class structure, white collar versus blue collar. To me, the future is green collar. And so to see yourself as a green employee of the future that's going to help us live sustainably and not perish is an important task. And to see the value and where you can add to how we solve problems, whether it is manual or not. I think it was a well-respected trade during Da Vinci's time. And considering that we think he's one of the most inventive and creative people who's been alive, that idea should move forward. And we need to respect all of these different talents that people have and understand that that diversity is our strength and it will be our savior. Parents need to hear that message. Completely. Because they have yep. so much influence on wanting their children to follow a specific path and certain kinds of careers and think they're going to make more money. Well, you know, I think that there's, there's an important thing to remember here when we're talking about stories coming out in the newspaper about people not wanting to go back and work for minimum wage, is that if you have a, a large portion of the population who is going to go through high school and who can then have uh, vocational training and stuff, they can be earning a lot more money doing things like plumbing and electricity and surveying and things that right now those professions are in the decline. It's certainly more appealing to have a much higher wage and the pride of work than working in fast food. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know why anybody thought that it was smart to make any of those people have a poor self-esteem. I mean, that is one of the things about working with Vijal. Dr. Vijal Parikh is one of my co-founders, and we just see this enormous crushing load of self-esteem on kids who are not finding their path because their parents are pushing them in particular directions. And this self-esteem really is, it's so terribly destructive. It leads to kids really underestimating their own worth. They, you know, there's a lot of drug use that happens out of that. There's often dropping out and recidivism. There's criminal things and does also connect highly with literacy. But there's a large portion of the prison population that's mechanically inclined. But I mean, in 2000, they did a study in Texas, about 80% of the Texas incarcerated population was illiterate. 
I mean, we're wasting talent and souls. We're crushing people. What's the hierarchy serving for is so that somebody can think that they're like the top engineer that that doesn't solve anything at all. It's really it's it's disrespectful and non-equitable. And I think it should be retired, this whole thinking. It's not correct. I really appreciate that. So, Alex, as we're starting to come to a close, how can listeners reach you? I am most active on Twitter, and that is because I find that a lot of academics are on there. And so that's a fun place to discuss new papers that have come out. Everything is going to be at nature. So N-A-2-U-R-E. So nature.com nature.org, our website, uh, nature on Twitter, nature on Instagram, and nature on Facebook. Well, thank you, Alex. You've certainly given us a lot to think about, and I hope people do. It's really, really worth considering and supporting what you're doing. Thank you to our listeners. We would appreciate your letting us know what you've heard in this episode or previous ones and found helpful towards shaping your work legacy. And let us know what other questions you would like our guests to consider so we can continue a meaningful conversation with you. And if you like what you heard, please help us spread the word. Please go to our podcast website, legacymakersatwork.com, and legacymakers has a hyphen. Uh, where you will find more information and show notes and Alex's contact information too. And also subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review. So again, thank you. And until next time.